Welcome to the IAH podcast, where we profile fellows of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities here at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm Melissa Clay, communication specialist. In this episode, Philip Hollingsworth speaks with Andy Perrin, professor of sociology. In their conversation, Dr. Perrin maps out his current research project on the connection between humanities education and democratic engagement. He also describes the circumstances that led to his career as a social scientist. I guess to start out, if you could describe a little bit about your project you've worked on during your fellowship. Sure. Um, The project I'm working on here this semester, and which I'll be working on for a good long time in the future as well, is all on um, how we think about or or what contribution the humanities education makes to democratic participation, democratic citizenship. Most of my prior work has been on the sociology of democracy and the public sphere, and so I've always been interested in who participates in our national conversations, how they participate, how they try to make points, and what kind of tools they bring to those discussions. What I'm trying to do here is see if the humanities uh, and humanities education really does contribute to those kinds of conversations. So if we think about the, the various different ways that, that we and others have, have defended the teaching of the humanities, particularly in higher education. You can think about the humanities as being good just because they're good, um, yeah. right? Uh, <laughs> you know, art for its own sake, humanistic mm-hmm. education for its own sake. On the other side of the spectrum, you can think about you know people in finance, for example, have said, well, we like humanities graduates because they think creatively and they can think in new and different ways about a problem. So there may be a financial payoff to the humanities as well. Right. But the third way is that we think about higher education as producing um, citizens who are better at participating in the public sphere. And it may be that the humanities have a special place in producing those kinds of, of citizens. And so that's the question I'm trying to figure out with a couple of different approaches in this project. What would be one of those approaches? Right. So essentially, there are three different pieces to this project. I'm trying to kind of move the ball forward in all three pieces this semester. Piece one is a a traditional quantitative social science project, and it belongs in this only because it's about the humanities. Mm -hmm. Um, So I have a big data set of 15,000 people who were high school sophomores in 2002. It's federal education department data. And we know I have the actually the transcript, the college and high school transcript for every one of those um, kids. People. Oh, wow. Okay. And we're trying to figure out, you know, if we break down those transcripts into how much humanities they take, how much STEM, how much pre-professional, how much social science, do we see differences in whether they voted post-college, um, whether they hold attitudes um, that it's important to help others in your community, that it's important to help correct inequalities. Mm-hmm. Um, right, so that's, that's piece one. Piece two is I actually developed 20 years ago when I was working on my dissertation, I developed a, a procedure essentially for measuring what I call the democratic imagination, which is a much more humanities take on the same question. And it's to what extent um, do people deploy kind of creative, interesting, um, broad-minded approaches to political problems when they're brought up. And what I hope to do, what I plan to do, is to bring uh, groups of college seniors together with different amounts of of humanities background and put them almost in kind of a conversation laboratory like that. Okay. Um, Ask them to approach some political problems and see, does their background in the humanities provide 
more and less sort of tools for that democratic imagination. And then the third piece, which is maybe a little bit in between, is um, we're administering um, a survey of a larger number of college seniors, trying to get them to to kind of um, think differently about citizenship and public engagement uh, and watching whether they actually do that after a year after college. So those three together ought to give us a lot of rich information okay. about about this question. And during this your fellowship period, did you have any unique experiences, any epiphanies during in your project or, or speaking around the table with other people? Absolutely. You know, I, I think I came at this as something of an outsider. My my research is certainly in social science and mm-hmm. not the humanities, although it's sort of the humanities side of sociology. What, what I learned, I think, from my colleagues here is the degree to which this mode of thinking, uh, the humanities mode of thinking, is really unique uh, and very different from how STEM scholars think and from how social science scholars think as well, mm-hmm. uh, in that it really values and even valorizes complexity. It's a very different way of thinking from how STEM and social science scholars think. You know, if we think about a you know, maybe a classic political science or even you know biology uh, argument, the approach to complexity is to seek to reduce that complexity. And that's a really productive way of thinking. It's really helpful. It's really useful. But it's very different. And so as I've as I said, I'd say the main thing I've learned as an epiphany is just what those mechanisms might be for why serious uh, scholarship and teaching in the humanities would contribute a really unique element to uh, to democratic citizenship afterward. So your your work on sociology, what kind of led you to that career path? When I graduated from college, which was with a sociology um, degree, although kind of fell into that more than anything mm-hmm. else, but when I graduated from college, I worked on uh, uh, computer repair on, the, on a factory floor in three different uh, General Motors factories in Rochester, New York. Okay. Um, and I also, I was not a union member because of the particular organization of my job, but I got involved in and, and interested in the kind of union politics going on there. Um, and so that was really where I started to to build some sense that um, political engagement, which had been a, an interest and concern of mine for a long time, was really a social thing. It went beyond just kind of voting and movements and things mm-hmm. like that that maybe a political scientist might um, study. And so as I thought about going to graduate school, um, one of the things I wanted to do was to to kind of expand beyond thinking about politics as just sort of parties, groups, and movements, um, mm. which are really important, but they don't exhaust the right ways to think about politics. So, right. so that's kind of how I ended up in sociology. I was really fortunate to um, go to a fantastic sociology program at Berkeley that really kind of nurtured that interdisciplinary approach and the kind of borrowing from lots of different traditions and ideas that's where it came from. Is there a certain action, is there a certain method that you would say the U.S. as a society could employ that would increase political democratic engagement? My view is that the we should not be so worried about some of the things that a lot of people do worry about, like voter participation. Okay. Honestly, more people vote than is rational to vote in the United States at this point anyway. Um, voter participation is up a little bit. Okay. You know, I don't actually think that's the crisis. I think the crisis is actually about participation in the public sphere, mm. which means being able to um, express one's concerns to others who who don't agree or who might not agree. 
but also what I would call access to disagreement. Most people, right. including a lot of people who agree with me politically, simply don't have access to good disagreement. And that means that either they don't pay attention to it or the disagreement that is expressed is expressed in terms of scorched earth, anger, denigration, or they are are willing simply to dismiss disagreement as mm. being a function of ignorance or others being bad people or worse people. All of that is incredibly impoverishing to the public sphere. I actually don't think incivility is the problem either, although it's nice if people can be nice. That's good. <laughs> but uh, but being nice is a lot less important than being frank and really right. being able to uh, really engage and grapple with people who disagree. So that's, that's again, one of the things that I think a great humanities education might provide people is the idea that, you know, people disagree about a given text. Let's, let's get to the root of that disagreement. Let's understand it fully. Sometimes we may come to agreement. Oftentimes we may not. But to be able to, to really appreciate and hold the fact that there are different views and different interpretations mm-hmm. is a key humanities principle. A while back, I'm not sure when it was, uh, you were invited to a salon held by the uh, Institute for Arts and Humanities yep. in New York City. Yeah. Can you speak to that experience a little bit about what that was like to engage with alumni in sure. that situation? Oh, that was, I mean, as an academic, or to me at least, that was uh, that was just sort of pure pleasure, right? You get flown up to New York and you get to go to a nice restaurant and have a great conversation with people who care about these kinds of ideas and engage outside the academy, which is really, mm-hmm. I think for many of us, one of the things that um, that we worry about is that the ideas don't make their way outside of colleges and universities. And so right. to have that opportunity was was really fun for me. Um, you know, what I tried to do was to take my, my then new book, American Democracy, um, and take some of the lessons from that and turn it into a conversation about, you know, what, what should you do? How should you engage with disagreement? Um, you know, don't back down. Don't mm-hmm. be, you know, don't. Don't fail to say what you think because you want to be nice. Right. But also don't assume that your opponents are bad or wrong or, or stupid. And so trying to, to – so that was the, 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 um, that was the emphasis of that conversation in New York mm-hmm. and, and um, I had a great time. Well, speaking of getting your scholarship, your research outside of colleges and universities, mm-hmm. what's, a, what's a good way that scholars can do that, can engage more with the public outside of academia? Sure. I mean, I you know, the the reality of our public sphere is that it's impossible for anybody to do the greatest job of that. The voices that everybody knows are are pretty monopolistic, and they don't let other voices of any kind in, whether those are academics or populist activists or um, you know right wing activists or whatever. Mm-hmm. There's only a few voices that that really are listened to across the spectrum, and those are quite tightly held. There are other opportunities, though, for kind of bleed through from from one kind of segment of the public sphere where things do, you know, they can they can go viral, they can make their way into the public sphere in one way or another. So um, I think most of these are things people already know about, but they we ought to be more aggressive in trying to do a better job of them. Um, one is um, op-eds and other kinds of um, authored things in the media. An incredible number of people continue to read the media, either online or through, um, through right. a printed page. Uh, when we think about social media as overtaking the media, that's actually not true. It's that social mm-hmm. media are a new way that people share 
media stories. Yeah, that's true. So I think um, op-eds, um, online blog posts, opportunities for things like that are things that academics who want to get their voices heard really ought to uh, kind of pay attention to. The other thing I think is really important is often when academics try to, to play in the public sphere, they make the assumption that their work, their real work is too complicated, too nuanced, mm, yeah. and so they have to dumb it down more in order to have it out there. I think that's a wrong assumption, and I think it plays into the idea that the public sphere is a place for stupid people. Um, <laughs> um, I think instead, many people in the, in the world are anxious for smart discussion, interesting points, um, things that kind of change the game instead of just playing the game. So I, th- my other advice for academics is, yeah, you need to make it somewhat simple. But don't assume that your audience is so stupid that you lose the real core complexity of the work that you're doing. Well, thank you very much. My pleasure. Yeah. Check back at iah.unc.edu for the latest news on our fellows and upcoming events at Hyde Hall. You can find all our episodes of the podcast on our website, as well as iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at IAH underscore UNC.